I have been offered a higher sum of money to give a shout out for the Detroit Lions. <laughs> they get dressed every Sunday to play and then don't play. The last time they won a championship was in 1957. Your parents were not alive. Psalm 73, please. I don't think your grandparents were alive. (laughs) Decades ago, my father-in-law encouraged me to preach the Psalms. And I must confess, they did not appeal to me at that time. In fact, it took years before I began delving into the Psalms other than Psalm 119. But I must confess that on a daily basis, these chapters in the Psalms are a blessing to me. Psalm 73 is one of those chapters that asks the question to ourselves, have you ever looked at others? and said, man, they've got it made. I'm doing right. I'm living right. I have eternity in view. I'm abstaining from evil, but for some reason, their lives are unfolding in a much easier path than mine. They seem to get it right in the classroom, They seem to get it right with relationships. They seem to get it right with looks. They seem to get it right with abilities. And they even seem to get it right with the car they drive, though it's mom's car, but it's not a minivan. (laughs) My first year teaching here, I had a college senior come to me and say, Dr. Love, could I talk to you? And basically, he was giving me his life infused through Psalm 73. I put in four years of college. I have done right. And by the way, I believe he was doing right. I'm having integrity in my courses. I'm working my way through college. I am careful with my relationships. And yet I look at some of my friends who are not those things, and yet it seems that God is blessing them. Can you help me? Why is it that it appears that for some... Life actually turns out right. They don't seem to face the normal consequences of living the side of the Garden of Eden. In fact, to the person that wrote this, this psalm was so difficult for the verbiage that he gives that he says in verse 16, when I thought to know this, the inequities of life, it was too painful for me. His sense of justice just sucked the peace of God out of his life. His sense of fairness withered his soul into nothingness. His sense of equality robbed him of any emotional stability that he had had. And this appears to be a common malady because Psalm 37 and Psalm 49 address the same thing. And yet here we are in the middle of a college semester, trying to do right, trying to build relationships, uh, Valentine's week. And things just aren't going right. He begins with a topic sentence that most likely is his testimony, but he doesn't stay there long. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. 
which I believe that he was exercising. By the way, when it says truly God is good, it is an active goodness that was displayed. It wasn't something that he couldn't find. It was there evident for life. But it was not registering with him. Because he says in verse 2, but as for me, truly God is good, but as for me, I don't want to be a blasphemer. God has been good to me. And God is good. And I see the goodness of God upon multiple students, my friends, co-workers. But as for me, he then unfolds a testimony that is rather long. It's dark. It's weak faith. It's filled with erroneous statements about God. So our first thought this one is what looking at others does to my looking. Verse 1. Truly God is good in Israel even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish. Why would somebody be envious of the foolish? What would make a person named Asaph testify that he was envious of people who did foolish things? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to him. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. These are the ungodly who prosper. Verse 13, verily I had cleansed my heart in vain. I wanted to make sure that my life was right. But when I did it, it seemed to be in vain. It was empty. It was fruitless. Verse 14, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I would offend the weaker in the faith. When I thought to know this, it was too painful. His summary thought is found in the last verse. When I thought to know this, it was too painful. The internal agony of a man who believed in God The internal agony of a man who worshipped God and served God, it was his life. The internal agony of a man who led the worship service, as we'll say in a bit. He was one of the leaders in the nation of Israel, assigned by David. Who was doing right? But he found himself in a painful situation. Or literally, as in the dark side of life or the dark side of work, where one is doing things, but there's an unfulfilling aspect likened to the Solomonic statement of life is full of vanity. Why would a believer 
who has so much to look forward to and so much to live for in the present, envy the foolish. I don't begrudge the celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs. But by about today, it's going to be over. Why would we envy them? What is there about the brokenness of our souls that makes the emptiness of this life seem so good? Spurgeon said it this way, It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious. But worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious at the foolish. Before we brush this mental malady off as being insignificant, let us remind ourselves that this place is called a slippery place in verse 18. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. He speaks in verse 2, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Slippery places. It's that slow descent from the parking lot to the gymnasium about 9 o'clock in the morning. A place where there's no stability. A place where one's progress is always under jeopardy. A place where at any moment one can fall into great danger. Listen carefully as I say this. Are you aware that life out of high school and before maturity adulthood sets in, you are in one of the most dangerous places to want the lifestyle of verses 2 through 17? Say it again. Are you aware that life outside of high school and before mature adulthood sets in, you are in one of the most slippery places you'll be in your entire life to want verses 2 through 17? Are you aware that life that grows up with faith and has not grown up in faith is in a most dangerous place? I'm making that statement because I'm going to draw our attention to something that may well be in your Bible or may not be. It's not in one of the verses. My Bible simply says at the top under Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Who is this man? Is it just a title? Is he a person? Why is his authorship included here? Why would God allow a human being to write these things about life and about God? by a man who should have known better. Asaph was a Levite of the family of Gershom. He was one of the three chief musicians appointed by David to preside over the choral services of the sanctuary. He led the musical procession when David brought the tabernacle back to Israel. Wow. He was chosen to lead the choirs at the site of the new tabernacle. Asaph. The kind of guy that in our circles 20, 30 years ago would sign the fronts of Bibles. His name is recorded in sacred history as an honored seer and a gifted singer. 
There had to have been stability in his life because his sons were part of what could be called the Sacred Musical Guild of Israel, which influenced Israel's culture all the way to the building of Ezra's temple. The family of Asaph still had integrity. But at this point, Well, look at verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. What's the use of being raised in the ministry? What's the use of going to Bible college? What's the use of being in the pastor's track? What's the use of protecting my testimony? What's the use, says this man? It's vain. It's empty. There's no affirmation as that of the world. I'm not applauded. Though I've had positions of honor, he says. He felt his religious duties were unfruitful and his raw deal was unfair. He felt that everything he was doing for God was vain. Verse 14, for all the day long have I plagued, been plagued and chastened every morning. If I would unload like I really want to, verse 15, I know that I would discourage people who are weaker than me and I have enough integrity that I don't want to do that to them. But this is how I feel. I wish I could just stand up and say, look at what life turned out for me. He felt his mind, his thinking was a mess. He really had found instability on the slippery slope of looking at the supposed prosperity of others. William Graham Scroggy, an author of yesteryear, said this. There are some problems, and I want to make sure that we, I explain it a bit. There are some problems which intellect cannot solve. He's not espousing blind faith. He is saying there are some things in life that don't have answers now. What's it like looking at others? What does it do to my looking? Well, verse 2, but as for me, and it ends up in verse 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Let me just suggest a nugget to this second point, which is, this is a brilliant outline. The first one is, what looking at others does to my looking. The second one took a lot of thought, what looking at God does to my looking. Very deep thoughts here. I want to say something about verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. You and I will not have the blessing of the last part of verse 17 till the practice of verse, the first part of verse 17 is authentic. You'll never see the reality of the second half until you're willing to participate in the reality of the first half. 
Now, this is not my pet peeve. But I thought of it enough and digested it enough to actually put this in my notes. Asaph, this is a person who had grown up with faith but found himself gaming in chapel. And I do not say this about me as the speaker here. But corporately, you will never find better preaching over a four-year span than what you're in right now. And some of you have become habitual gamers. You will never find, over a span of four years, the kind of music that you get here. And some of you are lost in chapel. You're in a slippery place, a dangerous place. My first missions trip as a pastor was to Ecuador, and we went to the interior of Ecuador to help build a building. Our missionary um, said, we will work till dark or till it starts raining. And the moment it started raining, he shouted, get your tools, we're going off the mountain. And I said, why, why the hurry? He said, because this is nothing but, the mountain was nothing but mud and muck. He says, the vehicle will not go down, the, well, it would. The vehicle will go down the mountain any which way it wants. So we jumped in the pickup truck, and we may have only gone a couple hundred yards And he ditched the vehicle. And the rest of us, literally, it was slip slide all the way down the mountain. We could not direct where we were going, what routes we hit, what animals we came in contact with. We just flew down the mountain on our bellies, on our seats, on our backs. And it was fun. (laughs) But it was really dangerous. Slippery places can be fun, can be exhilarating, can awaken the senses, can cause one to view things that one has never viewed before. But a slippery place is a place where no one has control where they end up. This person, who had helped create wonderful music, but now lost the connection to the words with those songs. This person, Asaph, is the person who was a participant in seeing the majesty of God, but had faltered in seeing the purpose of God within the life cycle of other people. Now I'm going to make this assumption. Is it possible that the real slippery places of life are not those places in verses 1 through 16, but actually verse 17? what one does with God when one is supposed to do something with God. I think verse 17 is more dangerous than verses 1 through 16. So let's tie this together. On this end of verse 17, he's looking at unbelievers from a biblical perspective. So if we are now participating... Envy and the ungodly whose life seems to turn out so well. Let's read now what the perspective of verse 17 gives to this man from verse 18 to verse 21. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought to desolation? As in a moment I 
they are verily consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked. I was convicted for how I saw life before 17 and the reality of what's really going to happen, their end. He uses such words as destruction, desolation, consumed. He is now amazed at how foolish he was to think that those in the first half of the chapter had life under control and the apparent controlled atmosphere in the first half of this chapter is nothing more than the mercy of God. But in verse 23, he looks at himself from a biblical perspective. Verse 23, nevertheless, keep in mind that he started out by saying, but as for me. Now he says, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. My flesh and my heart faileth, the first half of the chapter. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me. This is the man that said, it is vain. What's the use? Now come the layers and layers and layers of blessings to those whose vision is no longer on the unmerited favors that the unsaved get. He says in verse 23, I am continually with thee. Would that help one's outlook? He says, later thou hast holden my right hand. That does not sound like a slippery slope proposition. He says, thou shalt guide me. Total contrast to what he was fussing about in verse 2. And then he says, whom have I in heaven? He says, thou art my portion. Catch this. The word portion actually is a legal word connotating that which is done at inheritance. When my parents died, their family of seven children inherited several cardboard boxes of their earthly possessions that Ken and Janet Love had left. That was their earthly life. When God sent his son to die for me, I inherited God. Who's rich now? No wonder Asaph says what he does in the closing two verses of this chapter. For though they that are far from thee shall perish, thou hast destroyed all of them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me It is good for me to be a believer that draws near to God. It is good for me who takes the temple services seriously. But as for me, 
growing up in it, says Asaph, and finding cynicism to be my sister, my companion. It is good for me to make sure that those God times don't shut my soul down, but help me see God. Heavenly Father, you allowed the transparency of this godly person who was privileged to be raised in a wonderful atmosphere to put in print stuff that was going on in his life. God, I pray that we would take heed. I pray that we would take warning. I pray that we take advantage of the bounty, the blessing that we have in something called chapel, the tabernacle time. And we ask this in your name. Amen.